Take your Bible, if you would. We're in the book of Genesis. We're in chapter three. We're looking at a message called Hide and Seek. Hide and Seek. Great game uh, when we were young, especially. It's a great game for parents with young children because if you tell them you're going to play hide and seek and don't look for them for a while, you can have a little respite. Um, There is a famous movie line that I remember from years ago, and the movie line was this. The man says to the other older gentleman, do you remember those wonderful games of hide and seek we used to play? Do you remember how you could never find me? And he says, do you know that I never looked? (laughs) Well... Today, hide-and-seek is really about the seeker of the lost, and early on in the Bible's story, in the account of Scripture, we see a God who came to seek and to save that which was lost. All the way back in the book of Genesis, that's what he's about. He comes into the fallen uh, scene, the, the garden where there was once this beauty in life, and now our first parents have fallen, and he comes as a seeker to seek and to save that which is lost. And we're going to see in Genesis 3 what the church historians and church fathers called the proto-evangelium, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. All the way back, right after the fall, God sets the stage for the coming Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've come as a seeker of lost people. Thank you that you sought out me when I was lost in my sin, um, really on my way to judgment, and you called me. You used people and circumstances and even me having to face my own shortcomings and sin to see my sin for what it is and what it was. And Lord, to turn to a redeemer, a God who wants to cover us in his righteousness. It's such a beautiful uh, truth. The gospel is such good news that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And thank you that in the garden, in an ugly scene where our first parents fall and make their excuses and hide from God, that right there, you are the God who comes to seek your people, to seek the lost. There may be people who are here this morning and they've been running from you, Lord, or they've been a prodigal, or maybe they just don't completely understand the gospel yet, but I pray whatever the situation may be that your Holy Spirit would guide us through this next few moments that we have together to see wonderful things from your word, to put ourselves in that garden and see how we might become better and learn lessons from the fall of Adam and Eve. So we just lay this time at your feet, pray that you'd be glorified in it and guide us through it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hide and seek, Genesis 3, look at verse 8 with me. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God, Genesis 3, 8, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence, literally the Hebrews, the face of the Lord. They hid from God or from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The word garden in Hebrew is transliterated into English as gone, G-A-N. Gone in the Hebrew picture language means to lift up life or to let life grow and flourish. In the garden, there's a wonderful picture of life, life at its best. What makes life at its best is the presence of God and the absence of sin. You might want to write that down. If you're going to live the high life, if you want to know what the Garden of Eden was all about, the king's garden, it was the presence of God and the absence of sin. And that is how you come to know true life today. You come to meet God 
And when you meet God, his presence abides with you. In fact, you become the temple of the Holy Spirit and sin is taken care of. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 says, God is no longer counting your sins against you in Christ. That is such good news. Walt Hera wrote a song some years ago. Uh, it's out of Psalm 130. And it goes like this. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness. With you, amazing grace. Every sin I've ever committed, you have erased. That is the story of the gospel. And even in the garden, we see the first glimmers of hope shining in what has now become a dark place. And if you want to know what life is about, life is about the presence of God and the absence of sin. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10, 10. I have come that they might have what? Life and have it to the full. That's what God wants for you. God wants you to have a garden experience, if you will. And here's God walking towards our fallen parents in the cool of the day. That would seem to indicate sunset, and it would indicate, too, that God had a daily appointment with our first parents. In fact, there are some scholars and theologians that believe the Garden of Eden was really a garden temple. It was God's abode. He was always there. We could go back and forth on that. But the bottom line of the text is that God would come in the cool of the day, maybe as the sun was going down, and he would spend time with Adam and Eve. We don't know how much time has gone by here, but I'm sure that they've experienced this for quite some time. They've experienced direct fellowship with God. They have seen the face of God. It's what we all long for as Christians. We read passages in Revelation and other places, and we say, that's my desire. I want to see his face. I don't know if they began to take that for granted, but at this point, they are literally hiding from the face of God, hiding in their sin. They have pathetically sewn fig leaves together to try to hide themselves, but the fig leaves will not do because everything is naked and open before the one to whom we must give an account. That's Hebrews 4, verse 13. He sees everything. It doesn't matter what you cover yourself with, what fig leaves you're hiding behind this morning. He sees it all. Everything's open before him. And so in a pathetic attempt to cover themselves from the presence of God, think about it, it's only those two and the animals. There's nobody else to hide from. What are they doing now? They're hiding from the one that they should be thrilled to see. That's what sin does. And they hid themselves. Look at verse eight. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And they hid among the trees. All those lush trees that God had said, you can partake of any of those trees. Now they're hiding from God. And now Eve has taken the bait. Our first parents have taken the bite and they indeed went through an eye-opening experience. Satan told them, your eyes are going to be open and you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. You're going to rise when you take the bite of that forbidden fruit. Oh, yeah? Why are they cowering behind trees trying to sew fig leaves together? That's the lie of the enemy. He'll make you promises. Oh, if you just take the bite, take the plunge, it'll be great. You'll rise higher. And then you find yourself somewhere cowering in a corner, wondering what your next step should be. Our first parents, in fact, didn't uh, realize the promise of Satan because he's a liar. In fact, I guess they did. But what they realized is something God promised. In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And they died at the tree. 
when they took the bite of the forbidden fruit, the taste of death was in their souls. As the fruit was on their lips, death went into their souls. You might say, but they didn't die. They're sewing fig leaves together. They're hiding. That's not evidence of a dead person. But in the Bible, that's not what death means. In fact, the Hebrew word for death taken into English is moot, M-O-O-T. Sometimes when you're having a conversation with somebody, you say, that's a moot point. What do you mean? It's dead. There's no reason to talk about it anymore. Well, in Hebrew, that's the word for death. It's moot. They're dead, but they're, they're still walking around. They're still hiding. They're still sewing fig leaves together. In the Hebrew picture language, death or moot is the sign or completion of chaos. It's the end. It's chaos realized. They're hiding from God, but they're dead. Henry Blocker explains, he says, in the Bible, death is the reverse of life. It is not the reverse of existence. To die does not mean to cease to be, but in biblical terms, it means to be cut off from the land of the living or from the living God. It is a diminished existence, but nevertheless, it's existence. Death is essentially separation. We too, all of us have entered this world with the stain of sin and death. The wages of sin is death. And all of us have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. But even though they are spiritually dead, they're still existing. And you're going to exist forever in one of two places. That's what the Bible teaches. Your existence will not end. You had a beginning, but you're not going to have an end. And you're going to live forever in one of two places. You're either going to exist in the bliss and the presence of God in a renewed garden scene, if you will, beholding his face, or you'll be separated from God forever. And in both Hebrew and Greek, the essence of the word death is separation. Death, in essence, is to be separated. Death is the separation of the spirit from the body, according to the book of James. But ultimately, if you die the second death, if you experience spiritual death, you'll be separated from the goodness and the love and the grace of God forever. And people are going to choose that, sadly. Many people are hiding from God today. They don't want to come to the light. And they don't come to the light, according to Jesus, lest their deeds should be, do you remember? Exposed. They don't want to be exposed. So they stay in the darkness and they won't come to the light. And that is a decision of the will. You know, one thing I would say to our extreme Calvinist friends who say that a person cannot respond to God unless they are first born again, look at Adam and Eve. They're spiritually dead. They can hear God's voice. They can interact with him and they're hiding from him. Unbelievers can hear God's voice. They can hear God's word, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They push it away or literally push it down. They turn up the music of life and they push down the voice of almighty God, which day and night, just from creation alone, testifies that God is there. But they're dead and they don't want to come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. And so Adam and Eve are the picture of humanity hiding from God who just wanted to bless them. He had give them, given them everything. Every delight was at their fingertips. He, he just held back one thing from them and now they're dead. Therefore, just as through one man, Romans 5, 12, sin entered the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, Paul writes, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. The course of this world is the way of death. 
according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. The course of this world is death. You must take the one path that leads to life. There are many ways to death. And Adam and Eve have taken the bite. Death has entered into the human race, just as God promised. And now they try the cover-up. Remember I told you that the word shame has overtones of worthlessness. They feel worthless. So they try to cover up. They try to hide what they have done, which so many of us have done. In fact, R. Kent Hughes says, Adam and Eve, as our first parents, were genetically, historically, and theologically every man and woman. They are the paradigm of all of us, not only in their original sin, but because the way they attempted to deal with their sin is a pattern with which we attempt to deal with ours today. And the way that God dealt with Adam and Eve is the way he deals with us. I want you just to be able to put yourself there. Don't just be a spectator. Put yourself in the garden and ask the question, what would you do? How do you respond to God when you know there's something that he's potentially exposed in your life? Are you hiding out? Are you hiding behind your own fig leaves, your own self-righteousness? I told you last Sunday that Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags before the Lord. We cannot do enough. There's, no, there's not enough fig leaves in all the world to make yourself right before God. You need to be covered by another. How long this went on, I don't know, but near sunset, um, day in and day out, beautiful, sweet fellowship in the king's garden. Imagine if you were there. Every day you got to meet with your creator, the one who had blessed you, the one who had breathed life into your nostrils. Every day you got to behold his glory. In fact, there are some theologians that believe that in the Garden of Eden, it's Jesus in human form. And he's with them every day. Before he was ever born in Bethlehem, uh, before the manger is Jesus in the garden. Whether it's a theophany or a Christophany, ultimately they're interacting with God Almighty. And he's walking with them in the cool of the day. One day that will be realized, but they had unbroken fellowship. All this, this beauty and now the serpent comes in and lies to them. And paradise was lost. Now they're not going to see his face anymore. What we all long for, they're going to lose. Sometimes we take things for granted, don't we? Every day they got to see God's face. Maybe for them it came, became like no big deal. But here comes God. The Bible says we can never escape God's judgment in anything that we do, anything we try to do in our own righteousness. But Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord my soul will exult in my God. Listen to this. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. If you're a Christian today, you are covered, indeed, wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Go all the way to Galatians chapter three for a second. Hold your finger in Genesis. We'll come back. Galatians three, look at verse 13. This is what God did for us that we might be wrapped in his righteousness. Galatians three, in verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Galatians 3.13, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order, Galatians 3.14, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. And then skip down to verse 28, Galatians 3. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have what? You have clothed yourselves with Christ. When God sees you now, if you go back to Genesis 3, he sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And you are clean. You are blameless before him. It's hard to get your arms around that one, isn't it? In fact, I'm not sure that many of us really believe it. Because we hear these promises and we hear that our sins are forgiven and we hear that we're clothed in the garments of salvation, but we still are trying to save ourselves in many ways. It's so hard for us to get our arms around that the price has been paid in full and you are wrapped in the garment of salvation. The Bible tells us when Jesus returns and his glory appears in the darkened sky, the glory clouds, all the angels with him, that the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders, the rich, the strong, the slave, the free, they will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they will say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Do you know that when the end time scenario unfolds and Jesus returns, people will go into hiding in caves under rocks and they will say, hide us from the wrath of the lamb. They would not receive his sacrifice, his blood uh, on their behalf. So now they will say, hide me from his face. The garden scene is, is also a foretaste of those who reject Jesus Christ. And who is able to stand? Sinners won't stand in the judgment. They're gonna fall. But you will stand, Jude 24, faultless, with exceeding joy one day before him, not because you did it, because, but because he's able to keep you from stumbling. That's why the gospel is good news, you guys. That's why it deserves to be preached on the highways and byways because the price has been paid in full. Here's the seeker of the lost, Genesis 3, 9, then the Lord God called. So they're hiding, God seeking. Then the Lord God called to the man. And he said to him, where are you? Now, if you ever, uh, you know, for those of you who have had kids or you have kids right now, you know, sometimes your children try to hide for, from you in a fun little game and you know exactly where they are, but you'll say, where are, I don't know where he is, where are you? And they're trying to cover under a blanket. And that's kind of a fun thing. See, God knows where they are geographically and spiritually. He's not wondering what their location is. He knows where they are. This is a remedial question. This is a question of where are you? Can I ask you, where are you today? Where are you with God? Really, if everything was peeled back and everything was taken away, how would you assess where you are? Well, God calls to Adam, not to Eve. He calls to the man, verse nine. Why to the man? He'll interact with Eve in a moment, but he's gonna hold Adam ultimately responsible. Eve is also responsible. But since the man has headship, and this is what I've been telling you, in, in the, the book of Genesis, headship has been established. The man is the head over his wife. I know a lot of moderns say, how dare you? Look, you're equal, you're human, but there's a role that's been given to the man. And he is going to be held culpable for both of their sin. And ultimately, it's through one man, Romans 5.12, that sin entered the world. Adam is held responsible, and God calls to Adam. And he says to him, where are you? If you look over at Genesis 4 for a second, same principle applies. God said, Genesis 4, verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. 
Am I my brother's keeper? Genesis 4.10. And God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me on the ground. It doesn't mean that God doesn't know where Adam is. He knows where he is. He's trying to get him to come out on his own. He doesn't want to drive him out of the trees. He wants to draw him out of the trees. So sometimes when we have a little kid that's made a mistake and they're hiding behind the door symbolically or literally, we could beat the door down or we could ask the question, where are you? We're trying to get them to confess. We're trying to get them to come clean. You know how apt we are to do that, right? Kids are playing ball in the house. They break the lamp. You know how they all line up just for mom and dad to come home so they can all come clean, right? Wrong. They're usually scatter. <laughs> some years ago, I was uh, playing some ball with a young man. I had had a chance to lead him to Christ and mentor him some. And we were at a park and it was close by a street. And uh, I was throwing some balls to him and he was batting and he hit one over the fence and a car was coming and it smashed into the windshield of the car. And he looked at me and said, should we run? And I said, yes. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I thought about it though. And then I thought, this would be a really bad example. I'm a pastor. <laughs> we broke a window. But you all can relate to this, right? Our first instinct when we do something wrong is to run. <laughs> we don't sit there and line up and say, okay, I did it. Wouldn't it be refreshing with all the scandals in the world and all the people covering up and hiding and we got to go through all these investigations to find out the truth. If somebody just stepped up to a podium and said, I did it, I made a mistake, I'm sorry, I'll take my lumps. What do you do now? Okay. Here's your punishment. I mean, even police officers say, if you song and dance them, they'll probably give you a ticket. If you're just honest, sometimes they let you go. Why? Because they're so shocked that somebody's honest. Well, Adam and Eve set the tone, don't they? The Lord God calls to the man, where are you? Trying to draw him out. And what's Adam trying to do? Hide from the presence of God? Jonah tried that, remember? And he found out that God speaks fish. <laughs> Custom made. David wrote in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, think of Jonah, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. The devil will always prepare a way for you to run from God. A ship will always be waiting. A car will be running a place to hide. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you, verse 10, Genesis 3, in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Fear and shame come out in the garden. Who was Adam afraid of? Who was he hiding from? God. That's what sin does to us. We hide from the one who wants to heal us. Strange, isn't it? The one who can actually do something about our sin, we try to run from him. And Adam says, I heard you coming. I, I heard your sound. I knew this was the time of day that you, you come for our daily walk. And I was afraid. In Hebrew, the word afraid or fear is yare. In the Hebrew picture language, it means fear or awe, but it literally means the hand that you see. The English fear carries the idea of terror, but yare or fear in Hebrew carries the meaning of trembling, 
either in terror or in reverence of, or wonder. It used to be that when God came, there was a, an awe, a wonder at his presence. Now the fig leaves are shaking and the lips are trembling. Now he's afraid of the one who was there to bless him. He said, I heard you coming. I realized that I was naked. I realized that I was exposed and I tried to hide. There's a truth here about people's pain. People try to hide their pain. Sometimes they lash out. Maybe a lot of what's going on in our society, at least in part, could be answered in the fact that a lot of people have pain and they don't know what to do with it. So they, they make their cases and do whatever they do. And God says, come out, come out, wherever you are. It's time to come to the light. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. The Bible actually teaches that when you bring your sin into the light, sin loses power, but it's so hard to do it. It is so hard to admit that you are wrong. It is so against our sin nature to fess up. The psalmist writes, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. This is Psalm 27, four and five. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. God's calling Adam out to try to teach him something about salvation. And he said, God said to him, Genesis 3.11, who told you that you were naked? There's nothing in the record that anybody told him. He saw his own shame. And God said, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Does God know that he ate from it? Yes. The question is trying to get Adam to confess. It's like when your little kid takes the cookie before dinner and you told him, don't do it. And you know he did it. The lid's off. There's cookie on his face. And you say, did you take the cookie? No. He did. <laughs> right? The classic blame shift maneuver. Blame shift 101. Goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And Adam, speaking for many over the years, said, the woman, verse 12. And you could stop right there. <laughs> Sorry, ladies. But many men have said that, right? It's the woman. But he doesn't stop there. In the Hebrew, the woman means my side hurts. I'm just kidding. It doesn't mean that at all. The woman that you gave me. He blames her and God. I know nobody's ever done this. Nobody blames God, the creator and sustainer and maker of life for their problems all the way back to the beginning. Do you see it? You gave her. Now, just a few verses ago, he was saying, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Whoa, man. But a year of marriage has gone by. <laughs> now, <laughs> the woman. <laughs> Do you see it? <laughs> it's a pattern of all of life established in the garden. The woman that you gave me, 
you put this dangerous creature next to me. <laughs> she gave it to me. It's not mine, it's hers. She gave me from the tree and I ate. Nothing about, he was sitting there while the serpent was tempting his wife. Nothing about his own responsibility. Nothing about how he should have stepped in and done something. Nope. The woman and you, God. You set it all up this way. Adam's response could have been a simple yes, I ate. But he didn't do that. One writer says, through rationalization, the criminal becomes the victim. We live in a culture of victimhood, the no-fault culture. But its roots go all the way back to the garden. Victimhood has become the fantasy land and refuge for everyone from criminals to presidents to theologians who imagine that the blame for their conduct can be placed on some other person, some other thing, some other group, and even God. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault, but it's certainly not mine. And here comes the blame game. One writer said, to err is human, to blame it on God is even more human. I can't remember who it was, but he said there were two great American periods in, uh, in our own history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. <laughs> and here we are. We're all famous for it. I wonder how our relationships might change. I wonder how our churches might change. I wonder how our country might change if we became a little bit more honest and said, it's my fault. Do you know that 2,000 years ago, somebody arrived, he was in that garden when our first parents fell, he gracefully called them out of hiding to himself. He gave them a down payment of the gospel in that garden and then 2,000 years ago, he arrived and he said, Father, blame it on me. And he made him, God the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He said, Father, I'll take the blame. We can barely own our own stuff, let alone stepping up and covering somebody else's faults. But you know, the Bible says that love covers uh, a few? A multitude of sins. Do you see that this is the gospel? It's so hard for us. We can barely own what we do, let alone. But Jesus gave us the example and he came into the world and he never sinned. And yet he was probably naked on that cross. He despised the shame, but he endured it for the, for the glory of God the Father and for the hope set before him that we would inherit the kingdom. And we're supposed to be like him. We're supposed to be different. And God addresses the woman he says, what is this you have done, 13? And the woman said, the devil made me do it. This is the first place. She said, at least she's honest. She says, he deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, and you know the running joke, he didn't have a leg to stand on. He said, because you have done this cursed, then there are many curses coming. Cursed are you more than all cattle. There's some symbolism here. 
more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You're going to eat dust, Satan. (laughs) Now, he's addressing the literal creature, just like I told you in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. The, The human king is addressed, but the spirit behind the human king is addressed. And here, the creature is addressed, and he is going to slither along. And anybody like snakes in here? Even Indiana Jones was afraid of snakes, right? There's a few people. Usually when you, when you pull a room like this, there's one or two that like snakes, but the rest of us, ooh, ooh, ooh. there's something about a snake, right? Low to the ground, eating dust. And the snake is symbolic of our fall. Every time you watch him on the ground, you remember the fall of our first parents, taking us down to the dust from which we came. God says, final verse for this morning, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, this seed that will come, shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. NIV reads, I will put enmity, that means strife, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, the seed of the woman will, and you will strike his heel. Now, modern critical scholars have denied that this is the first gospel, but I will tell you this, all the way back to the second century, church fathers such as Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, called this the proto-evangelium. Literally, just write it this way if you're writing it down, the first gospel. The first gospel is in Genesis 3.15, and it talks about the seed of the woman, which implies the virgin birth He'll be born supernaturally without the seed of a man. He'll be the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman ultimately is Christ. And he will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will strike at his heel. The serpent will give him a blow at the cross, but it will not be fatal. But the fatal blow will come to the serpent's head and he will be cast in the lake of fire. Satan will soon have his head crushed under the church, Romans 16, 20. What we have here is an astounding gospel prophecy because God's curse upon the serpent turned into a word of grace, giving us what has been recognized from the second century AD as the first gospel. The woman's offspring, literally seed, singular, is Christ. And Satan's seed is gonna cause problems. Jesus told the religious leaders, you're of your father, the devil. So unbelievers could be the seed of Satan, but the ultimate seed of Satan, in my view, is gonna be the Antichrist. Empowered by the dragon, Revelation 12. And he will be destroyed by the brightness of the coming of the, the one who would come, the Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the first time that Jesus came, it says he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And Jesus said, Father, blame me. And if you're in Christ, you are blameless before the Father. You see, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one is coming to God the Father through him, except through him, because he's the one that paid the ransom price. If you're gonna try to make it on your own, your fig leaves will never be enough. You're gonna stand before God one day trying to cover yourself in your own righteousness, and it's not gonna fly. But if you are willing to be clothed in those garments of salvation, and it's a free gift, you can't earn it, He he will take your sin, he did at the cross, and he will give you his righteousness in exchange. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. 
the hope of salvation, even though we are exposed before you and fallen and dead in sins and trespasses, yet in Christ we've been made alive, clothed in the garments of salvation. The serpent, well, his bite is now lessened and ultimately defanged because death will be defanged in the resurrection. And Paul says, oh, death, where is your sting? Well, you've dealt with that sting, Lord, and you took the piercing in your body. You shed your blood. You were treated as though you had committed all of our collective sins, though you were innocent. Thank you that you love us that much. It's an amazing love. It's such good news. And as we are about to come to your table now to remember what you did, remember how you transformed the Passover meal into this remembrance your body that was pierced like the matzah, your blood that was shed like the wine represented at the Seder. Lord, we remember you. And thank you that you came to seek us. You didn't forget about us. You didn't leave us hiding somewhere in a corner. You seek and save that which is lost. With your head and heart bowed, if you have not met Christ, but you know you're here for a reason. You know God has called you to this place to hear this message that he's been seeking you and knocking on your door and wooing you. And you know that you need him so desperately. We all do. With your heart and head bowed, it's time just to ask him to, to cover you and cleanse you, to trust in him and him alone for your salvation. And if you're a prodigal and you've been running, just remember he's been waiting for you. He's a seeker of the lost. It's something like this. If you want to give your life for the first time or rededicate your life, pray to him. Call out to him while he can be found. It's something like this. And say it out loud. If it's you, Jesus, save me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and I trust in you. I'm not gonna do it my way. I'm going to do it your way. Clothe me in those garments of salvation. Make me a new person on the inside. Cause me to be born again of your Holy Spirit. You don't have to have a perfect prayer, but you need to confess right now that he's Lord. Believe on him, trust in him for your salvation. Lord, for prodigals who have come home, we praise you. For those of us who just needed a little further clarification or just encouragement that we're saved in the righteousness of Christ, thank you. Let our lives be a thank you note. Let our living the right way and our gratitude be because of all you have done for us. As we come to your table now, bless us with the sweetness of some face-to-face -face time with our God. Communion is a foretaste of what's to come. And as we partake of the elements, we thank you for all you've done for us. And we look forward to that day when we will be at your table face to face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.